0: Mark Cavendish, what happened on Sunday? We were very surprised. I think, look, I was a lot of emotional. rumours in there at, the, at the start of the race that the rest of the race is going to be cancelled. Obviously, Belgium had uh, the government had a meeting on Monday about you know the, the restrictions over coronavirus, and I, it suddenly dawned on me. I don't have next year sorted yet, and uh, it dawned on me, you know, it could be the last race of the season and I'm potentially my career. You know.
1: You are listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success.
0: Like. I still don't don't have next year um, sorted and with with, uh, with maybe the possibility the races weren't carrying on you know we, it was suddenly realizing that uh, it could be my last race
2: If you can't stop like this you are the greatest sprinter of all time you can't stop without uh, none other, Yeah, I don't, but I don't
0: have a desire to stop I don't want to stop um, I love this sport I give my life to this sport and uh, and uh, you know I'd like to continue riding my bike I think I uh, think no, that's it, really. But the, the last the few years have
3: been very Late last October, as the World Tour season was racing against the prospect of a second coronavirus lockdown, it looked for all the world as if the sun was finally going to set on Mark Cavendish's career. Since being diagnosed with Epstein-Barr virus in April 2017, Cavendish had looked a shadow of his former self. He had celebrated just one win in almost four years, and that was a stage of the Dubai Tour in 2018. Even being reunited with his friend, mentor and former coach Rod Ellingworth at Bahrain McLaren had failed to provide the spark to jumpstart his career. At ghent perhaps thinking it might be his final race, Cavendish got in the early break. He did race three more times, at Price, the Tour Flanders and finally Brugge de Panna, where he made the front echelon as the cold autumn wind sliced up the peloton like a chef's knife, only to crash out while he was in that front group. After the race, he spoke to Richard in a cold grey leisure centre car park on the outskirts of Dipana. It was no way for the greatest sprinter of all time to bow out of the sport. Not the talking to Richard bit, I must stress. Cavendish didn't want to stop, but there was a distinct shortage of takers. If Ellingworth couldn't revive the glory years, could anyone? A move back to de Quickstep, where he spent three of his peak years, looked a long shot, if only because it was the sentimental option. And Patrick Lefevre doesn't do sentimental. When asked, he said, my heart says yes, my head says no. And then, in early December... Rich, crack on with the news, shall we? Because uh, several of these things we're going to talk about in this episode... First of all, Mark Cavendish is returning to De Kernick Quickstep quick He rode for them from 2013 to 2015 when they were Omega Pharma Quickstep and then Etics Quickstep. He won 44 races for them, including three Tour de France stages, and he goes back there after a year with Bahrain McLaren. <laughs>
0: All right, I'm here in Villefranche-sur-Mer with Mark Cavendish. Kev, we've been riding together for a couple hours, and something just dawned on me. You've won pretty much every race you could have wanted to win. World Championships, Tour de France stages. You're 34 now, but you're still at it. You're still, like, out there training. What is it that keeps you going, and keeps you wanting to to go through the process of being a pro cyclist and one of the best sprinters in the world? Uh, We were talking about on the ride, weren't we, a bit, you know? How much cycling's changed? Like it's really not the same sport we started, like the professional side, but it's still cycling at the end of the day, It's Still riding the bike and uh, I love riding my bike. Maybe I don't like some of the other people who <laughs> ride the bike, but uh, I still love riding my bike and you know, we just had a nice ride today, haven't we? And, uh, and it's that, like ultimately, I got sick. I was still winning right up until I got sick. Yeah, like you get dicks who are like who don't want for years. It's fucking yellow jersey tour in sixteen Four stages, not that long. And I got now. sick the year after. Yeah, you know, and I got sick and and I didn't win. Just went from winning everything to winning nothing. And I just want to win again. That's it. You just know? want to prove those people wrong. Like it all, it all can change back so quickly as well, can it? I've been proving people wrong my whole career. It's not really that like for my own thing, you know. Just to just go from winning everything and nothing, and then people not realizing that there's a re- reason there. You know, you you have you have that in your mind, I guess.
1: Now I can ask the question. What's it like to be the equal of Eddie Merckx? What's it like to be the record holder of stage wins on the Tour de France?
0: It's tiring. That's all I get like. I can't even think about it. I'm afraid I'm so dead. 220 kilometres in that heat. That wind. That final...
3: In Carcassonne, I stood in the zone technique right on the finish line. I couldn't see a big screen where I was standing so I was watching the race on my phone and I could tell from the French commentary which was coming from the speakers and filling the warm late afternoon air that my phone was on a slight delay. I knew the riders were into the final kilometre so I put my phone in my pocket and craned my neck to look down the road just as the peloton came into sight. Seeing the riders coming up towards me was a reminder of just how fast the sprint finishes are and just how difficult it is to take in what's happening with the naked eye. The riders seem impossibly close to each other. It struck me that this was once Mark Cavendish's kingdom and for years he dominated this terrain. And during this Tour de France it's been just like that again. I saw a flash of green cross the line just in front of the others. It was Mark Cavendish's 34th Tour de France stage win, equalling Eddie Merckx's record which has stood since 1975. The record's not important, Cavendish insists, perhaps overly keen to play down any comparisons with Merckx, the undisputed greatest of all time. The number doesn't matter to Cavendish because all Tour de France stage wins are equally and individually precious. Merckx won his 34 stages between 1969 and 1975, 16 of them were time trials, He won in the mountains, he won on the flat, he devoured his opponents on all terrain, which earned him the nickname, the Cannibal. But Merckx also won the Tour itself five times. He is the greatest of all time, and no one disputes that. But Cavendish now has a chance to take one of Merckx's records. There are two opportunities to win that 35th stage, in Liborne today, and on the Champs-Élysées in Paris on Sunday, where he's won four times before. No one's suggesting that by breaking Merckx's record, Cavendish would suddenly be his equal or his better, but the significance of tying the record number of stage wins should not be underplayed. Cavendish won his first in 2008 when he was 23, and here he is, 13 years later, after losing the best part of three years to an illness and the associated fatigue, back winning while other sprinters from his heyday have long since retired. At times over the years, he and his team have been unbeatable, so much so that there was a period when rival teams stopped investing in sprinters and sprint trains because they knew that at the Tour de France they were racing for second place. Cavendish has been led out by the Maillot Jaune and the Rainbow Jersey, and that in itself says something about his status. His own dominance has also shone a light on the work of lead-out specialists such as Bernie Eisel and Mark Renshaw in the early days and Mikel Merku and Davide Ballerini today. In this episode of Kilometre Zero, I will take a meandering look at Mark Cavendish's career. I can't promise to stick to my line or even get over the line first, but hey, that's sprinting.
1: And on the left-hand side, it's the uh, Quickstep boys who are really trying to motor out the pace with Stiegmann's. They've got a clear run at the moment. Who's off coming across, but Stiegmann's in third spot here is he going to be delivered in full speed i think it's a little bit too far out at the moment they're still trying to lead it out steegmans with huzhov nearby he's still got adam handsome ready to lead things out and cavendish is lying in third spot here and uh in fifth here comes cavendish sebastian chavanel gets under his wheel steegmans kicks for home as much as he can oh cavendish oh that's a wonderful victory by cavendish i don't think anybody's gonna catch him that is an incredible piece of sprinting and I think it was in fact Sebastian Chevenel who got second place.
3: 2008 Narbonne. I'm walking back to the press room having just watched the podium ceremony in the finish straight when my phone rings. It's the sports editor of the Sunday Times asking if I can interview Mark Cavendish for Sunday's paper. I agree and then turn my attention to setting up an interview. I have two shots at it. Tonight is Thursday which makes tomorrow Friday. But after a quick look at the road book, I realise the Team Columbia Hotel is miles away from the one I'll be in tomorrow. After the stage on Saturday will obviously be too late for the paper's deadline. And besides, the big rumour is that Saturday will be Cavendish's last day on the race because the plan is to pull out early in order to be fresh for the Olympics in Beijing. So tonight it has to be. I call the team's PR officer, who says that I'm welcome to head over to the hotel in the hope that Cavendish has time between his post-race massage and dinner, but that if he doesn't fancy it, then that will simply be bad luck. The hotel is not the best. The bar area is cramped, with vinyl-covered armchairs and sticky rings on the coffee tables. It immediately makes me think how the Tour de France still retains its links with the old days and its humble beginnings. The suffering on the bike extends into the recovery hours. The riders don't need luxuries like air conditioning or even cleanliness. Henri de Grange would have approved. Cavendish is at the top of his game, having won three stages of the Tour de France and he'll go on to win a fourth tomorrow. And yet he's staying in a budget hotel that barely deserves its two stars. And he's prepared to sit down to speak to a journalist well past ten o'clock. Can you imagine a Champions League footballer or major winning golfer doing this? I sit and wait, my own stomach grumbling, while Cavendish has dinner. In fairness, I don't have to ride a bike almost 200 kilometres tomorrow, and I can stop at any takeaway joint I can find between here and my hotel once the interview is in the bag. When Cavendish emerges from the dining room, he takes a look around the fairly depressing bar and, I'm sure, considers an early night is a far better option, but he sits down, orders a water, and we begin. It's a funny assignment, this, because in cycling circles, Cavendish is already an established star. He's a world champion on the track, he's riding his second Tour de France, he's won a string of top races, including Skelderpreis and stages of the Giro d'Italia. But to the great majority of the newspaper's readers, he'll be an unknown. He's won the Skelder what now? He's a cocky kid who has just burst onto the scene in the past week, and is already well on his way to winning more Tour de France stages than any British rider in history. At this point, Barry Hoban has the record with eight in the late 60s and 70s. Cavendish is already a record breaker, the first British rider to win three stages in the same year. But who is he? I asked Cavendish about his introduction to cycling on the Isle of Man. He was 12 when his mum Adele took him to his first race, just a few laps of a little circuit near his home. Cavendish was on a small BMX. All the other kids were on mountain bikes, but he didn't care about that. All he was thinking about was winning. He came dead last and told his mum on the way home, I'd have won that if I'd been on a proper bike. For his birthday, he got a mountain bike, and the first time he raced it back at the same circuit as before, he won. Looking back now, it boggles the mind to think that there were 10 years between that first kids race on a BMX and his first Tour de France stage victory, and another 13 years have elapsed since that first Tour stage win and his 34th. Anyway, back in the Hotel Grimm on the outskirts of Narbonne, I asked him about ballroom dancing. His mum owned a dancewear shop and had persuaded the teenage Cavendish to give it a go. I'd seen a photo of him in a black sequin shirt open to the chest, black trousers and shiny shoes, ready to cha 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 or de Kerning quickstep with his dance partner. I brace myself as the question comes out of my mouth. I don't know why. Perhaps I have a feeling he may not want to talk about it, or that he might later regret talking about dancing because things like this have a habit of becoming the go-to question for young sports people in the early part of their career. But Cavendish relaxes and explains that as soon as he realised there were competitions in dancing, he was interested. People used to take the piss out of me for it, but I was good at it, and we won, he says, so I kept at it. I enjoyed it, but I enjoyed winning more. He talks about the things cycling and dancing have in common. Strength, discipline, coordination and timing, and above all, the ability to build a trusting relationship with your teammate, or in this case, dance partner. When the conversation switches back to cycling, the light in his eyes fades a bit, as if the fatigue of the tour suddenly caught up with him. I ask about the Olympics, and he refuses to confirm whether he'll be leaving the tour early to give himself the best shot at the Madison in Beijing. Partly that's out of politeness. He doesn't want to disrespect the tour by telegraphing his withdrawal. The clock ticks past eleven, so I suggest he'd probably benefit from a good night's sleep. It's funny, you know, he says, I go to bed dog-tired, but when I wake up in the morning I feel fresh and I can't wait to get back on my bike. Maybe it's because I've been winning. Or maybe it's because I know Saturday's my last day here. He flashes me a smile to check I've heard what he's saying. The following day, he gets out of bed, gets on his bike and wins the stage to Nîmes, his fourth of the tour, already halfway to Hoban's record. The day after that, he calls time on his tour in Dean les At some point, we'd learned that Cavendish liked to play chess to keep his mind sharp, We were talking about it in the magazine's office one day, and my colleague Edward Pickering, who played a lot of competitive chess as a teenager, said with a sense of self-confidence that Cavendish would probably have admired, I could beat him. So we called Cavendish to challenge him to a game of chess. I play speed chess, he said. You have to make each move in ten seconds. I'll still beat him, said Ed. And so, a few weeks later, we meet up in a hotel in Monmouth Street just round the corner from Covent Garden in London. Ed has brought his chessboard and pieces and set them up in the centre of a table in the Viceroy suite. Cavendish arrives with his sports director Brian Holm. Among the photos on the wall in the room is a shot of Manchester Velodrome. Cavendish clocks the picture. He had been the only member of the British cycling track squad to return from the Beijing Olympics a few months earlier without a medal. He and his Madison partner Bradley Wiggins, who had already won two golds for himself, were never really in the running. And having pulled out of the Tour de France early in order to compete in Beijing, it represented the biggest disappointment of Cavendish's career so far. His bottom lip juts out, his eyes narrow. Did you bring that, he asks. He probably thought it was a ham-fisted attempt at mind games on our part. No, it's purely a coincidence, we assure him. Cavendish takes off his jacket and pullover and rolls up his sleeves before sitting down on one side of the board. Before Ed can ask him if he wants to play black or white, Holmes sits down, makes the first move and a game is underway. "'Quicker, Brian, you've got to move quicker,' Cavendish says. "'See, this is why I get frustrated,' he says, turning to us. "'Too much thinking. You have to react.' The demeanour of the two couldn't be more different. Holmes sits back, his hands clasped together as if in prayer. His body language, if not his play, give a good impression of a grand master.' Cavendish, meanwhile, is on the edge of his seat, leaning into the board, his eyes darting from piece to piece like a lizard waiting for a fast-moving insect to dart out from behind a rock. The match is one-way traffic. Cavendish is out of the blocks fast and advancing across the board with multiple pieces, blocking and swarming Holm. Within a dozen or so moves, Holm is in trouble. Check. Two moves later, checkmate. When it's time to play Ed, Cavendish throws in a couple of disclaimers. I'm not any good, he says with a big smile. You know how keen I am on blowing my own trumpet, but I'll never say I'm good at something if I'm not. But I do enjoy playing. I haven't played for a while though, so I'll probably get thrashed. Ed used to be a pretty handy player and qualified for the National Junior Championships as a youngster. We keep this bit of information from Cavendish. The idea that road cycling is like chess on wheels has become a well-worn cliché, but there are parallels. I play aggressively, Cavendish says. The idea is to capture the other person's king, not defend your own king, that's how I see it. And in speed chess you have to move quickly. You haven't time to think three or four moves ahead because the picture is changing all the time and you just have to react. By the time you take your hand off a piece it may already be the wrong move, but you're committed and you have to adapt and be prepared to switch to a different strategy immediately. Capturing your opponent's king or hitting the finish line first, they're more or less the same thing. Cavendish starts aggressively, using his bishop and knight to wipe out Ed's pawns in an attempt to isolate and box in the king. He also drills his pieces into the board and holds them down firmly with each move. Cavendish's attack is relentless, but Ed is canny. He sets up a solid defence and patiently starts to develop an attack of his own that Cavendish cannot keep at bay. As Ed said at the time, I was doing the chess equivalent of pushing him away on the forehead while he swung his arms at me, while I was using my other arm to jab him in the side of the ribs. Game two is all one-way traffic, and at the end of it Cavendish insists on a rematch. This time he has Ed in a bit of trouble. His game has improved noticeably. He's using more of the pieces, paying more attention to defence and mimicking some of the tactics Ed used in Games 1 and 2. He isn't just playing his own game. He's absorbed some of his opponent's strength and using Ed's moves against him. Ed still won the match, making it 3-0 but it was close. Now.
4: This is Mark Renshaw, the fastest lead-out man in the business, and there's the missile. He's locked onto his wheel now. This is going to be a formality. Win number six for Mark Cavendish. There's nobody can match the speed of this amazing kid. He has gotten the victory, and no British cyclist has ever, ever been remotely close to winning six stages of the Tour de France. What an incredible result. i tell you what, Phil, I don't think we need a photo for that one because there was nobody else in the photo. That was almost a last-minute solo
3: attack. 2009 Warsaw. It's a week or so after Milan-Sanremo and we're in Poland for the World Track Championships. I skip one of the afternoon sessions, take a taxi to the Great Britain team hotel and meet Cavendish to talk about his win in Italy. It was a desperation sprint, he says. That line was coming up so fast but I knew I'd got it. I was going absolutely full gas and I never sprint full gas except at the Tour de France, but I was giving it absolutely everything. You can tell because of how low I am, my chin is almost on the stem. Cavendish won the race at the first attempt, stunning Heinrich Hausler on the line, and is now recounting how he spent weeks lulling his rivals into thinking he was not worth worrying about as the race reached the climbs of the Cipressa and Poggio. In the run-up to the race, Rod Ellingworth sent him a text to say that Tom Bonin had been quoted in the press saying Cavendish couldn't get over a railway bridge. I'd already seen it, said Cavendish. People think I can't climb, and I wanted to keep them thinking that. I needed them to keep thinking that. Everything Cavendish did that spring was designed to ensure everyone underestimated him at La Primavera. At the start of the year, he'd said Gent-Weathergem, not Milan-San Remo, was the race he was targeting. I've said I wanted to win Milan-San Remo at some point in my career, but it took Cipollini 13 years to win it. It might have taken me 13 years to win it too, but I knew that if the race went a certain way, I'd have a chance. At the Eroica, as Strada Bianca was then known, he climbed well. The thing is, he says, people just look at the results. They go, oh, he lost 6 minutes, he must be going shit. But the results don't tell you everything. It was the same at Tirreno Adriatico. I had a mechanical on the first day, but I was going really well. And on the longest stage of the race, I was in the gruppetto at the finish, but that only tells half the story. I was really strong and I hung on a lot longer than I used to, but I sat up and waited for the back group. Then I won the final stage just to confirm that my sprint was still there. He spent days riding the final 120 kilometres of the Milan-San Remo course with four-time winner Eric Zabel, who was working as a consultant for the team. Together they worked out where he needed to be in the bunch on each climb, where he could afford to lose places and where he might be able to move up. All that preparation was the easy part. The difficult bit was encouraging people to keep writing him off without him biting back. As Rod Ellingworth says... When Mark calls, the first five minutes are usually him going on about who's upset him or who's said what about him. I let him talk it out and then say, so, anyway. It's part of what drives him to the finish line. If you take that out of him, you just haven't got the same bike rider.
4: On cherche Cavendish. For l'instant il a un petit peu fermé. Marc Cavendish, mais ça va s'ouvrir dans la roue de Tourischov, peut-être le long des balustrades. Hauser qui lance le sprint désormais. Cavendish il doit doit faire l'effort maintenant. Cavendish qui est en train de revenir sur Hauser. te semble battu, maintenant. Ça va se jouer entre ces deux hommes. Cavendish peut-il remonter Osler qui va peut-être offrir la victoire. Cavendish est en train de remonter. Cavendish, non wow. finalement. Hauser, s'impose, pose. J'ai l'impression dans ce sprint ici sur le long gommé. Hauser a réussi à repousser the assault of Mark Cavendish. Alors là, écoutez, on n'aurait pas fait ce pronostic, mais rappelons que ce n'est pas la première fois de la saison.
3: 2011, Chartres. A fortnight after Cavendish had become the first British man to win the World Road Race Championship since Tom Simpson in 1965, and on the eve of Paris-Tour, I'm in a Novotel in Chartres to interview him. It's been a whirlwind couple of weeks since Copenhagen. He's done a round of TV interviews, attended a gala dinner with a host of British Olympians, and on Thursday evening went to see Rihanna at London's O2 Arena with his girlfriend Peter Todd. He arrives at the hotel at around 3 pm, quite late considering there's a 250km race tomorrow, especially as he has to fit in a short ride to loosen the legs this afternoon. In truth, the ride is little more than a photo shoot for Le Keep. Who want the first pictures of Cavendish riding in his rainbow jersey. We tag along behind the Le car as Cavendish rolls out of the hotel car park. Their photographer wants a shot of Cavendish with the town's imposing cathedral on the horizon, but I'm more taken by the contrast between the rainbow jersey and the moody slate grey sky. Cavendish overtakes a couple of kids on mountain bikes who do a double take as he goes past. Later, a club rider, probably in his sixties, tries to stay on the wheel, but soon has to give up. A group of riders coming from the other direction slow down when they spot the rainbow jersey and then realise it really is Mark Cavendish. They cheer and wave as he goes by, and one man at the back sits up and applauds. Cavendish gives a little nod of the head in reply. Back at the hotel, word has clearly spread that the world champion has arrived. We have to squeeze our way through reception. Cavendish goes off to get showered and changed. His team press officer sets out the plan for the evening. Before dinner there are a number of interviews for TV and radio. Cavendish is also to be presented with the International Flandrian of the Year Award by the Flemish newspaper Het Newsblad. Then he'll sit down to talk to just two print publications. The magazine I work for, Cyclesport, is one of them. We've brought a photographer with us, only to be told that Cavendish will not be doing any pictures. But more of that later. Let's get the interview in the bag first. Cavendish arrives in the little meeting room and we sit in the two armchairs that have been set up at a 45 degree angle from each other as if we're conducting some unbroadcasted chat show. He's brought with him a rainbow jersey and throughout the conversation he subconsciously wrinkles and then smooths the fabric the same way a child might play with a security blanket, each touch perhaps reassuring him it's still there, that it's still his. Cavanish talks about how the world title was the culmination of Project Rainbow Jersey, a plan put together by Rod Ellingworth at British Cycling to build a team capable of supporting him. "'It was built around the idea of creating a team that could win the worlds,' he says. "'I just happened to be the one to cross the line first. Rod did an incredible job. Three years ago, we were just a group of people riding on different teams. There were some older guys, some younger guys. Some guys got on well together, some people didn't get on.' Rod made everyone believe in something. He talks about how Lucy Garner's win in the junior women's road race earlier in the week gave him an added incentive. How he and Jeremy Hunt rode at the front all day, but drifted backwards on the Copenhagen circuits only climb each lap, using the entire peloton to cushion their fall in order to save his legs for the sprint. He also talked about how everyone in the team deserved a little piece of the rainbow jersey. I ask him what it means to wear that jersey, I don't know yet, I haven't raced in it. I'll find out tomorrow, he says. Our time is up and our conversation winds down. I find myself telling him that when I was a child, my mum knitted me a woolen rainbow jumper because you couldn't buy them easily in the shops. As she knitted it, I checked obsessively that she was getting the bands in the right order. Blue, then red, black, yellow and finally green. As I start telling him this, I feel silly, but Cavendish's eyes light up. "'Have you still got it?' he asks. "'That's one thing I'd love, a plain woolen version. "'There's something about these solid bands, isn't there? "'It's every bike rider's dream.' "'We stand up, and with our photographer Richard Babert "'and my editor Ed waiting nervously, "'I ask Cavendish if he's got two minutes for a picture. "'No,' he says firmly, "'I'm not doing any photos today.' "'I show him a photo on my iPhone of the setup Richard has in mind.' Cavendish glances at it and, thinking we'll want him to change into his cycling kit, says I really don't want to get changed. No, no, I say, you're good as you are. He's wearing a smart grey jacket with the sleeves pushed up to reveal an expensive looking watch. He's got on a collarless white shirt and grey jeans tucked into a smart pair of leather boots. It's a sort of retro 80s look that would fit on the pages of Esquire or GQ. He tells the team PR officer he's going to do a quick photo, then seems to change his mind. "'I won't have to walk through reception, will I?' "'It's still pretty crowded out there with cycling fans. "'It'll be fine, I say. "'Just pretend we're in conversation.' "'We get outside where suddenly it's cold and dark. "'The photographer's lights are in place "'and Cavendish's specialised bike "'is leant up against a cement grey wall. "'The idea is for Cavendish to climb on top "'and stand with his feet on the top tube and handlebars. "'Suddenly the team's PR officer looks nervous.' Even though it's now common knowledge Cavendish is leaving HTC Columbia to join Team Sky at the end of the season, it would be poor form to let him fall off the bike at this late stage. If this goes wrong and he falls, we're all in a lot of trouble, I half joke. But Cavendish gets it. He assumes the pose and strikes up a relationship with the camera. Click, click, click. Richard fires off as many frames as he can before Cavendish hops down with a nimble, light-footed grace that perhaps owes much to his dance training. Before I can even say thanks, he's back inside, making his way through reception with his head down. The following morning at the start, Cavendish emerges from the team bus in the rainbow jersey. The star, the centre of attention, the rainbow bands shining through. Brian Holm takes the opportunity to remind him who's boss, Two days before Paris Tour and you're at a Britney Spears concert, Holmes says, deliberately mixing up the pop stars. Do you think Francesco Moser would have done that?
1: You are listening to Kilometer Zero by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success.
5: Hi everyone, I'm Sam Brand and I'm a professional cyclist with Team Novo Nordisk, uh, the world's first all-diabetes professional cycling team. 2021 is a huge uh, year for Team Novo Nordisk. It's the 100th year of the discovery of insulin. Obviously, this year is a massive step towards to the whole diabetes community around the world and we want to show what's possible with diabetes coming into the back end of the season now we've got tour of denmark and our our main sponsor nova nordisk is danish so that's a huge goal for us heading into 2022 is is another huge year and we hope to capitalize on that for me personally in 2022 we actually have the commonwealth games again so i hope to be selected for the isle of man for that for that race you know we've got a, a huge wealth of talent like mark cavendish mark christian whilst I represent the Isle of Man, I'm representing myself, Team Nova Nordisk and the whole diabetes community whilst I do that and then every single one of Team Nova Nordisk wants to win. We want to win together, we want to do the best for each other for ourselves, for the team, and for the whole diabetes community around the world. And that's what we show day in and day out when we get on the bike. We race to inspire, educate, and empower everyone around the world affected by diabetes. And we hope that we can continue that through the rest of 2021 and throughout 2022.
3: I headed to Cavendish's adopted home county of Essex to interview him for a chapter of the cycling anthology that ended up being called Zen and the Art of Grand Tour Sprinting. He suggested we meet in a little bistro, he knew, and I got there early and waited. He arrived in a very smart sky-blue Jaguar car, and after he'd sat down and we'd said our hellos, I took a chance with a gentle joke. Nice car, I said. Is that Team Sky Blue? It's French Racing Blue, he said, with just the beginning of a snarl on his lips. A snarl I managed to diffuse with a broad smile, so he knew I was pulling his leg. We ordered something to eat, I chose the white bait, which was served in a small flower pot, which he found amusing. I wanted to try to unpick the bunch sprint from the inside, to learn about the chaos and choreography, the speed both of wheels and of decision making. The thing about speaking to Cavendish about this sort of thing is that all you really have to do is lead him out and he's off, plant an idea, then pull over and watch him hit top speed. He started talking about his own physiology. Put me on a rig in the lab and you probably wouldn't even call me a sprinter, he said. Team Sky's coach Tim Kerrison told him during the 2012 tour, I find it harder to understand how you can finish the tour than I do understanding how Bradley Wiggins can win it. Cavendish talked about the makeup of the muscles, the perfect balance between fast and slow twitch muscle fibers. Slow twitch muscles contract slowly, but can keep going for a long time, so they're good for endurance fast twitch muscles contract quickly. They're where the speed comes from, but they also tire quickly. Having the balance between the two is what makes Cavendish the athlete he is. Endurance cycling is anaerobic, he says. 90% of the road cyclists can't do the muscle damage that track sprinters do. Track sprinters like Chris Hoy go so deep, so aerobic, that they destroy their muscles, but they can't suffer for a long time like a road cyclist. Track sprinting is pain, road cycling is suffering. Being a road sprinter is suffering first, but still being able to inflict that pain on yourself at the end. People think that we're lazy, that we don't do a stroke of work until the last 200 metres, but we have to get there first, then be able to put out 1500 watts or whatever. Alex Dowsett, who's a lead-out man for Movistar now, says he finishes his lead-out and he's absolutely finished. He says, I can't understand how you manage to sprint after that. The thing is, we're tired, but we can still find that acceleration when it matters. Perhaps it's all the talk about muscles twitching, or maybe it's a salty whitebait, but while Cavendish is still in full flow, I feel an unmistakable sharp pain in the back of my calf. Without even thinking about it, I give a little yelp and leap out of my seat, sending my chair toppling over backwards. Are you okay? asks Cavendish. Cramp? "'Yes, yes,' I whimper, before mumbling rather pathetically something about it being a warm day and explaining that I'd been for a three-hour bike ride that morning. When he stopped laughing, he says, "'Point your toes and knead your muscle with your thumbs. It hurts, but it stops the cramp.' Here endeth the lesson on muscles. A month or so later, the 2014 tour started in Harrogate, his mum's hometown, somewhere Cavendish knew well from childhood holidays. With 25 stage wins to his name, by now joint third on the all-time list with André Le Duc, there was nevertheless a big hole in his list of achievements. Cavendish was yet to pull on the Maillot Jaune. Where better to do it than on British roads on the opening day of the Tour de France? It was as if the chapter had been written in advance.
4: And they're looking ragged behind, they realise Fabian Cancellara may have created the surprise this afternoon, 500 metres to go. Cavendish has got to come and he's too far down here, Cancellar is not going to make it, Kittle's going to try and get in, he's getting led out by Degen Golt, but there's been a crash there, Gerrins has gone down on the line, a touch of wheels as the breakaway goes clear now, and it's going to be Peter Sagan and Kittle is challenging him. Kittel and Sagan trying to go for the line here. It's going to be a desperately close finish but it's going to be the same as last year. Marcel Kittel takes victory on the line and again as the result as a crash and that is a terrible scene for us on the road. A touch of wheels and Mark Cavendish in all sorts of trouble when it should have been a day of glory for him. That's so sad. There was the touch, of his elbows there. Cavendish leaning on Simon Gerrans, And then the earth gave way and they both went down on the floor.
6: No, I think the first thing to specify is that Mark has um, he's admitted that he made a mistake today. He went for a gap that wasn't there. And he's hes called or he's going to call Gerrans to apologise. Um, I think he's got his number off, Mark Renshaw. Um, but uh, I don't really see it... At, has um, as that been the problem tonight? I think th- it has been a bit of a recurring theme in Mark's career that when he has been struggling, and by all accounts he's in very, very good form at the moment, but st- when I say struggling, I mean... Um, when he's under pressure and he's certainly under pressure at the moment he certainly has something to prove the consensus seems to be that Kittel has the edge on him now so when he's sort of straining um, I've always felt that he's more liable to take risks sometimes irresponsible risks the example that always comes to mind is this, the period in 2010 just before the Tour de France particularly the Tour of Switzerland where he um, was involved in, in um, a sort of infamous crash with Heinrich Hausler. And, and that to me that year was um, symptomatic of Mark not being in particularly good form and really struggling to find his best form, and you know, I've always thought that the day that Mark becomes a really a good loser is the day when he'll start um, losing his edge, and, and and part of it is about refusing to lose, and and you know, and sometimes he takes perhaps irresponsible risks. Twenty eighteen
3: La Rosière. The symbolism and symmetry was inescapable. Here they were, two contemporaries from the British Cycling Academy, born one year apart almost to the day, bookending the Tour de France on its first day in the Alps. Geraint Thomas won the stage and pulled on the yellow jersey. Cavendish crossed the line last, more than an hour behind Thomas, more than half an hour after the Gruppetto. There was only one way off the mountain at La Rozière, which meant the entire Tour de France convoy had to wait for Cavendish to come home. The crowd knew he was coming and they stayed to see him cross the line, greeting him with warm applause as he approached. I was walking along the line of team cars waiting to be released, and Hilaire van der Schoeren, the sports director of Wanty Group Goubert, tutted and said what others were probably thinking when he saw the clock hit the hour mark. With 30 stage wins to his name, Cavendish had earned the right to cross the line though. He battled on to finish the stage even though he knew he'd be eliminated. He wanted to honour the race. If this was to be his final act in the Tour de France, far better to finish with his head held high than put a foot down on the road and climb into a car. That night, though, it did look like Cavendish's days as a top-class sprinter were over. His best result in the Tour had been 8th at Amiens, when Dylan Groenewegen and Peter Sagan did to Cavendish what he had done to successive generations of sprinters. They'd made him look like an also-ran.
1: I wanted to be outside of that media scruff. because I didn't really want anybody I, I want you know whatever I just thought I just wanted to be there and I didn't whether Mark saw me or not I just wanted to be there. Um,
3: this is Rod Ellingworth, who waited for Mark Cavendish to, at La Rosier, speaking, speaking to of Ashnewy.
1: So yeah, so I just waited. It felt like a long time that was for sure. <laughs> it was. You know. I think what was really nice was everybody clapped him all the way up. You know, everybody was sort of and, and I think just with people afterwards have sort of said well he did well for you know he got through he did finish he he respected the event and i think that's really important you know especially because he loves this race he truly does love this race and i think if he you know he's really his heart is set on winning that record and i think you know it's just not gone well for him this year again you know it's not gone that well since the end of last well since at all last year so it's a year now where things haven't worked well for him so you know one thing or another isn't it and so yeah so it was quite a moment for him i think i just wanted to make sure because not they don't not they don't always have people with them do they you know support them and i wanted him to feel supported in a way even though it's external outside of his team i don't coach cav anymore but you never lose that sort of connection deal with people i don't think
3: cavendish didn't ride the tour in 2019 or 20. Even a couple of months ago, the prospect of him lining up in Brest looked unlikely. Those wins at the Tour of Turkey and in Belgium offered a glimpse of the old Cavendish, but everyone knows that the Tour de France is another level or two above that. As he said earlier in the Tour, after 20 kilometres of the opening stage in Brittany, he was wondering what on earth he was doing here. And yet here we are, a few days from Paris, with the record and a second green jersey within touching distance. It's an ending that even a Hollywood scriptwriter, or perhaps Richard, might have dismissed as fanciful. Here's the famously unsentimental Patrick Lefevre, the boss of De Kerning Quickstep, speaking a few days ago.
2: I have no problems. I called Eddie. He was laughing. He said, uh, he can't beat it. I have plenty of other records. <laughs> I mean, it's extraordinary.
3: Even two months ago, we would not have thought there was a chance, really. But did you think there was?
2: Well, there's a difference between you, journalist, and me. Your job is to write, and my job is to bring people back. Sometimes. How does Mark's level compare to when you last had him on the team? Yeah, but when he lost, when he left our team, it was about money. I didn't have the money he asked, and another team paid this, and Ron took a few persons to this team. And now he's back, the rest is history. Do you, feel you're, do you feel
3: you're getting good value for money uh, from this Tour de France from Mark Cavendish then?
2: Well, he is cheaper. He came for a minimum contract. But uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a bad man. We sat down the second day of the Tour and I said, to start the Tour, you get this. Every week, you get this. And if you win a stage, you get this. So, I mean, it takes a special person. I will, I will pay with a
3: smile. It takes a special person to kind of come down from a very high level and then build back up and, and achieve what he's achieved in this I tour. I think if
2: you ask him he will have more pleasure on this time than his first time. First time he had to and now he may.
3: And lastly if he doesn't equal the record in this Tour de France maybe there'll be another chance next year. I mean your eyes are telling the story behind the mask there Patrick. What, yes. what do you reckon?
2: I don't like to, to speak about uh, next year. The mo- if Yeah, I'm not a rider, fortunately. But if you are winning the 35th on the Champs-Élysées with the green jersey, you leave by the big door and not the back door.
3: This has been an episode of Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast. The producer was Tom Wally.